In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This is the word of the Lord. I never read this passage that my mind does not go back to Christmas Eve, 1968. But to really understand what happened that night, one needs to go back at least 10 years earlier. In 1958, the Russians put their first satellite into space. It was the first time that a man-made object could be fired fast enough that it would go into orbit around the Earth that we now had a tiny little sphere moving around the Earth at a speed of more than 25,000 miles per hour in orbit around the Earth. Immediately, President Eisenhower declared that our students were not getting enough math and science, and henceforth, every high school in America would teach more math and science. We worried. What would the Russians put on their next satellite? We had none. A camera? so that they could spy on every American city? A weapon system that they could rain down fire and destruction from the heavens onto the United States of America? In the fall of 1960, John F. Kennedy was elected president of our country and almost immediately said, within 10 years, the United States of America will put astronauts on the surface of the moon and bring them safely home again. It took eight years for us to get to the point that the astronauts went round the moon, not landing that first time. But much had transpired in those eight years. The Russians had put up other satellites. Finally, we had learned to do the same. They now had cosmonauts in orbit around the Earth for a few hours at a time, then landing again, one of them proudly proclaiming he'd looked everywhere and there was no God. We Americans were trying to get to the moon before the Russians I have one sister, one brother, my sister's husband, a young Texas Aggie engineer at the time. He had gone to work for NASA. She to teach school then at the Manned Space Center. And so we had a little more insight than the newspapers were sometimes giving us about how big an experiment this was. Computers were so much bigger and so much less efficient back in 1958. Even in 1968, had they computed well? The plan was that the little spacecraft would be slowed down as it got right near the moon, just at the right speed that hopefully it would go into orbit around the moon. Weak as the gravitational pull of the moon is, it does have one. And if the little spacecraft was going at just the right speed, it would go into orbit around the moon, which would then make it circle back toward the Earth. And at that right moment, if the rockets were fired, they should be able to escape the gravitational pull of the moon and start safely home again toward the Earth. That was the plan, and it was enacted Christmas Eve night, 1968. The astronauts went round the moon. We did not know whether they were safe or not. Had the plan not worked, were they still going, never to be seen or heard from again? Would they have enough power to escape the gravitational pull of the moon if, in fact, they had gone into orbit? The little spacecraft couldn't hear us. We couldn't hear it because all radios were line of sight. It was only when they came from behind the other side of the moon that we all heard. 
And the first words we heard were, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was darkness. There was chaos. God spoke and there was light. There was order. But that wasn't a scientific statement. That was a faith statement. Rabbi Gunter Plaut has said, this book is not going to be very helpful in a class on paleontology. Rabbi Nahum Sarna has said, this is not a book about science. This is a book about God. Hence, we call it a book of theology. Theos, logia in Greek, and words about our knowledge about God. And Rabbi, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Walter Brueggemann, one of our great Christian scholars, has said, there is ample room for unlimited scientific inquiry at this point. This is not a book for science class. This is a book for a class in religion. This is a faith statement. Number one, let me help put this into some kind of historical context for you. For centuries, people thought Moses wrote wrote the first five books of the Bible. They are the most important to the Jewish community. They have 39 books in their canon, in their Bible, but the first five are certainly more important than the other 34. They were called the first book of Moses, second book of Moses, third book of Moses, fourth book of Moses, fifth book of Moses, until a couple of hundred years ago, when biblical scholars discovered that the words on the oldest manuscripts we had were not words of Moses' time. They were later. One of the advantages of going to a liberal arts college is that you have to take a little bit of everything. And one of my courses was a course in the history of art. And when I've had the opportunity now to see so many great museums of the world, I keep trying to remember all this stuff that I was taught. When I walked through the aisles of the museum in Cairo, I was trying to remember what I had learned. I remember there was one century when, when artists were still making little clay horses where the mane and tail were sort of just little clumps of clay. And then all of a sudden they discovered how to scrape the tail so that it looked like it had individual hairs in the tail and individual hairs in the mane. And that happened at one century. So a little horse that doesn't have that is older and a little horse that does have it is more recent. Well, linguists can do the same. They can tell you when words come into a vocabulary and when they move out again, no longer used. Those who preserve the Holy Writ were very careful. And so when we look at the words they wrote down, we can tell the time from which they came pretty accurately. The Jews, for hundreds of years, were an oral people. They did not write. They did not read. We have no reference of any kind of writing and reading from them until the time of King David. That's fairly recent, the year 1000 or so. They had been a people for at least 800 years before that. They talked about their history as beginning with an old man named Abram, an old woman named Sarai, who lived at a little place called Ur in the Chaldean Mountains between the Tigris-Euphrates rivers, modern-day Iraq. And how God had come to this old man and woman who had been trying for years to have a baby. Nearly 100 years old, the writer said, never had a baby. And God promised him a baby. So they had stories about Father Abraham, Mother Sarah, child Isaac, wife Rebecca, twins Jacob and Esau, 
Jacob's 12 sons. Two of them favorite because they had the same mother, the one he really loved. Other 10, not quite so favored, born of other women. And so the 10 sort of always felt a little separated from the two. Two favored tribes, 10 not so favored. Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt, finally leading his people there in a great famine to come down and have something to eat. 400 years of slavery, then the coming of a man named Moses, a burning bush, a facing down of Pharaoh. Stories, stories told around campfires for hundreds and hundreds of years. We believe those stories first got written down about 950. Roughly 50 years or so after David had decided to build a new capital city in time to be called Jerusalem. This particular strand of writing is called the J source or the Yavist. It comes from the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush, the Eye Asher Eye, I am who I am. That was shortened to four consonants, uh, actually spelled most often Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. The old King James scholars called it Jehovah. It's called the J source. Because in these ancient writings, God is called most often Yahweh, and he just walks right up and talks to people. Morning, Adam. How are you? I'm fine, Lord. You doing all right, Eve? I'm okay. Cain, Abel, how are you doing? We're fine. In these stories, God just walks up and talks to people, and they talk back to him. Furthermore, the J writer had a creation story. But it's not Genesis 1. It starts with Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in chapter and verse. That came many, many centuries later. So, started with chapter 2, verse 4. One morning when the dew had settled in the dusk, God went out and scooped up from the Adamas and flopped it down on a potter's wheel. That's what it says in Hebrew. Like a potter to wheel, God began to treadle and treadle. The little wheel went round and round. And God molded and fashioned it till he had it just the way he wanted, breathed into it a big puff of air, and the little man jumped down off the wheel. And God said, that was fun. Let's do some more of that. How about if I make some things and you name them? And so God made an animal and Adam said, elephant, good. God made something, giraffe, good. Donkey, zebra, cow, dog, cat. That's the J writer. Chapter 2, verse 4 and following. We think it was about a hundred years later that the second oral tradition got written down. Scholars believe that that first one may have come from the favored tribes and maybe that second one from the not favored tribes. God in this source is called El or Elohim. And so it's called the E source. A hundred years later, how does God really walk up and speak to you? Well, not really. Then how did you hear from God? I had a dream. I had a vision. And in the E writings, God comes in dreams and visions and dreams and visions. The third source, we think, came about 125 years after that. When the northern tribes, those ten in the north, were decimated by the Assyrians. So raped, plundered, and intermarried that they ceased to exist as a separate people. The southern tribes are afraid the same fate will befall them. Scholars believe that one night a group of priests got together and said... The king would listen to us if he thought what we had to say was coming from Moses. And so they think they wrote a new scroll that night. Uh, ink still wet on it the next morning when they delivered to the king and said, Look what we found in the closet last night. Another scroll of Moses. And later the Greeks would call it 
Deuteros nomos, the law the second time around, because it basically says what Exodus does, but with a whole new twist to it. The de-source, the Deuteronomist. And then scholars believe the next source, called P for priests, was not written until after the people were carried away to Babylon. In fact, Dr. Walter Brueggemann believes that the P writers, the priests, did their work in Babylon. And old Dr. Gerhard von Rod, a great German scholar of the Torah, says he believes it was after the Exodus when they'd already gotten back home again. Nonetheless, Genesis 1, scholars believe, both rabbinic scholars and good Christian scholars, that Genesis 1 was written either in the Babylonian exile or shortly thereafter. And what is the purpose of Genesis 1? To say, you know the God of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Joseph? That one created the heavens and the earth. That one created the heavens and the earth. All that is were created by that one. There was darkness, there was chaos, and that one spoke. And there was light, there was order. That one created the heavens and the earth. I was reading the New Yorker magazine last week, first issue of this new year, 2008, and I saw a cartoon. One of you gave me a collection of those cartoons. It's a huge book that fills half the coffee table in my office, these New Yorker cartoons. This one showed a fellow sitting in his pajamas on the side of the bed with a telephone at his ear, and the caption says, This is your wake-up call. Change or die. <laughs> Genesis 1 is a wake-up call to the exiles. They are in despair. They are hopeless. They are without courage, without drive, without energy, without enthusiasm. Their priests say, in the beginning, our Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Number two. Second thing this Genesis 1 says is that God creates by speaking. Now, five times in this chapter, we have the word bere in Hebrew. It is a verb used only with God as its noun throughout the Bible. Nothing else beres but God. This is creates. Creatio ex nihilo. He's the only one who can create out of nothingness. And old Dr. Van Rod says, and effortlessly God creates. Without effort, he can do it. And he can do it out of nothing. He just speaks. Five times it says he created. Five times it says he made something. But 14 times... This, chapter 1 says, he spoke. God speaks and brings things into being. John picked up on that in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything that was created was created by the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came into his own. His own received him not. But to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God. God speaks. Sue Monk Kidd has written an old familiar story to me in her new book, First Light, 
about things that changed her life as she went along. It's a story about a young man who grew up in a church, uh, was baptized as a baby, confirmed as a child, grew up in the choirs in the Sunday school, and then drifted away from the church. He thought he was doing right well. Then he got caught in one of those downsizings. He lost his job. Try as he might, he could not find a comparable job. He went to home to see his old preacher who had been his pastor when he was growing up as a child. And he wouldn't even sit down but a moment. He just kept ranting and raving around the room saying, You told me to pray? I've prayed. I've prayed. I've prayed. God says nothing. I seek guidance and direction. Why is this happening to me? What do I do next? And God says nothing. And suddenly the old pastor sitting behind the desk said something. The young man said, Beg your pardon? And he said it again. And the young man walked a little closer and said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Finally, so close, he put his hands on the desk and said, I didn't hear you. And the pastor said, I was trying to say that sometimes God whispers so that you cannot hear until you draw closer to him. God speaks. Come close. Number, number three here. If God speaks, then a big part of our responsibility is to listen. To listen. The word Torah doesn't mean law. It means instructions or teachings. So God is speaking through the Torah and the books that follow. And let me, let me say, one fellow asked me after the first service, so how do you stand up there every Sunday morning and say, this is the word of the Lord? Let me speak to that. We mainline United Methodists, I do not speak for everybody in our denomination or in our city, but we mainline United Methodists believe this is the inspired Word of God. We believe God inspired J and God inspired uh, E and God inspired D and God inspired P. That God didn't tell us Moses wrote the first five scrolls. That God did work through real people. He did not tell them a cure for cancer. He did not tell them the earth was round. He did not tell them that the sun didn't go round them every 24 hours. In fact, if you read a little bit farther than I did, when they talk about creation, the word here for how God holds back the waters is a beaten bowl. God hammered out a bowl and turned it upside down. And that's what holds the waters back. So these people were limited by their own time and place in many ways. But God inspired truth about himself, about who he is and who we are and what he expects of us. And our job now is to listen very carefully, to listen very carefully. Elizabeth Sherrill, I tell you about her from time to time. She's in her 80s now, and she has a recurring problem with arrhythmia. I've never had that. But my only sister used to have that. I don't know if she does much anymore or not. But, but sometimes her heart would just race. You, you could, could see her chest moving. You know, when she's a little girl sometimes. It would just race, and it scared us all half to death. And Elizabeth Sherrill said she's had that recurring in her life, arrhythmia. And she has a cardiologist who's treated her, and they've tried various medications and changes in the way she behaves and, you know, exercising and all sorts of things. And every once in a while, her heart races. So she said not long ago she decided to look this up on the Internet. She looked up American Heart Association and started reading. And surely enough, there was a question. What is arrhythmia? Next, what causes it? Is it dangerous? And she said she let her eyes move on down a little farther, and it talked about heart block. 
See, that was scary. So she clicked on that and it said, sometimes electrical impulses are impaired in getting to the ventricle. Sometimes they're delayed, but all the signals finally get through. Sometimes they're delayed and only some of the signals get through. And sometimes the electrical signals are just blocked off entirely. And she said, I wasn't sure that was describing my heart, but it was describing my soul. It was describing God's eagerness to speak to me. And sometimes those signals are delayed and then I get them and sometimes delayed and I get just part of them and sometimes I don't seem to get any at all. But I'm listening, she said. I'm listening. I want to hear. And that's why we have Sunday schools. That's why we have worship. That's why we have Bible studies. It's why we have our hymn book. And I encourage uh, Dr. Pansera to pay close attention to the hymn text today because, once again, he's done a marvelous job of choosing the words for us. Notice the last hymn that we'll be singing in just a few moments. It's why we have a hymn book so we can listen. It's why we have great anthems that we not only hear the music, we hear the words. And I hear him when he's warming them up on Sundays and I run down to pray with him. He's encouraging the choir to enunciate, enunciate, say the words, say the words so that people can hear them. You and I are supposed to be listening. God is speaking. We're listening. Number three, we're supposed to answer. Somebody talks to you, you're supposed to answer. Say something in return. I call people and call people encouraging them to answer caught a young woman in the hallway after the first service this morning. I know she's not here. She's already been here. I've been trying to talk to her for two years. Cannot get her to answer the phone. I try all hours of the day or night, days of the week. Can't get her to pick up the phone. I caught her this morning. She's never been baptized. She's here almost every Sunday. She registers in almost every Sunday. She's a young adult, not a child. And I asked her again this morning. I just sort of pulled her over to the side and let everybody else pass. And then I said, why don't you and I set up your baptism? I would do it any afternoon, any morning, any day of the week. Just you and I and the Lord, or you can bring family. How would you like to do this? She shook her head. I said, do you have any question I could answer? She shook her head. I said, do you understand that this is the way disciples are marked, the waters of baptism? It evaporates, of course, but we've been marked as a follower of Jesus Christ. I wish you'd let me help you do this. I think it feels so much better. She just shook her head. I said, not yet. Not yet, she said. And she walked away. She walked away. I will ask her again. I'll wait a while. I'll ask her again. Because I think we need to answer. I think we need to answer. God speaks and we listen and then we answer. Carol Knapp has described a day when she and her husband were beachcombing south of Seattle, she said. It was a pretty day and they were walking along right at the edge of the surf. They were picking up little bits of driftwood and a shell here and there. And suddenly they heard a, a, a wailing behind them and they looked way up on the shore, about 150, 200 yards. And there was a little harbor seal pup up there all by himself. And he was crying. And she said, we went up there to see about him. 
He's sort of floundering around in the sand. We didn't know what to do. Uh, we'd never seen this before. Had somebody hurt his mother, killed his mother? Was he all alone? Was he orphaned in some way? What? We, we didn't know what to do. So we went away, but we told others about what we'd seen. And she said, surely enough, the next morning we got up and we saw out our window of the hotel that there was a crowd of people where we'd been the day before. We didn't know if the little fellow had died or what. And so we quickly dressed and rushed out to sea. And surely enough, there was a group of trained volunteers who had heard about this and they had come. And they said, well, what's happened is this pup's mother has gone out into deeper water to search for food. She left him right on the edge of the shore, but 48 hours ago we had an unusually high tide that swept him 200 yards farther in than he should have been. And now she can't hear him. We've let him rest overnight. He's rested. He's been fed. Now we're going to take him down to the edge of the water. And when he cries from the edge of the water, she will hear him and she will come.